Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. Night of the Knucklevy by Ian Gordon. I've lived on the island for thirteen years. I wasn't born here. I'm a townie, born and raised on the outskirts of a major conurbation. Competed in the rat race for over two decades, never satisfied with the cheese for which I brawled. Left in search of a better life, a quieter life. Found it on the island. Discovered peace and serenity. Isolated and remote, I fend for myself, come rain or shine. Live off the grid, off the land. But this is all immaterial. For the peace and serenity of which I speak comes at a price, a risk, the scope of which townies, typically, are incapable of comprehending. I mean, we know risk in the city. Watch our backs after dark, keep our wallets concealed in a crowd. But these things do little to prepare us for the wilderness. The secrets of the barren plains— the windswept rocks, the tumultuous seas, the things that dwell in the shadows, lurk in ravines, linger in deep waters. Terrible secrets, horrifying realities. Such concepts dwarf the pedestrian concerns of the townie. Far too preoccupied are we with life goals and domestic mundanity. Oh, how petty it all seems to me now! How trivial, pitted against the nature of life, here on the island. There are two of us at the Bothy, myself and Io, my border collie, my only companion here on the island, aside from the herd. Neighbours are few. Most of them were born here, with the exception of one or two who, also like me, escaped to this desolate place, compelled by the stark tranquillity it affords them. When the fairies come in, we might be seen gathered together by the wharf, trading wares, acquiring supplies. But all too soon we're retreating to our solitary homesteads, seeking shelter from the oncoming night, fearful of what it might bring. That's how it is now, at least for me. It's not as though I wasn't warned. That price, the risk associated with living here, I was told, manifests itself as something unspeakably terrible, a creature ancient, wise, and inhumanly fierce. That's one of the reasons dogs are kept here. Dogs, too, are ancient and wise. Their senses are keen. They hear what we can't, smell what we can't, and warn us of such when danger is nearby. But in all the long years, all thirteen of them, I took the furtive whispers to be the stuff of superstition, played along, never truly believing that the words of the great ops—that's what we call the seniors here on the island—had their basis in reality. Such ideas belong to folklore and the fiction writers. <laughs> or so I thought. Never took it seriously, until that night—the night it came. It was June, late in the evening— not sure of the day of the week. I only know that it was blowing a gale, and it was unseasonably cold, which is saying something, here on the island. I'd had a hell of a job herding. I own a fifteen-acre small holding, 
across which roam two dozen sheep, half a dozen dairy goats, and a couple of chickens. Prior to that night I had had little trouble with them, turned a blind eye to the frequent concerns for their safety voiced by Crowley, the great hop across the hill. It was true. Other smallholders had suffered losses in the night. A lamb here, a kid there. But as a practical, level-headed individual, I refused to attribute those disappearances to anything other than mismanagement. It's easy to lose count, particularly when the wind is in your face. But I'm getting ahead of myself. You'll have to bear with me. Having corralled the sheep and the goats, I secured the chickens in the coop and returned to the bothy with Io. The wind had grown strong, so I took the decision to board up the front windows. We're north-facing here, looking out across a broad swathe of grassland towards the Atlantic Ocean. It's not uncommon for all manner of detritus to strike the windows and break the glass— the last thing you want in a storm up here is a broken window. Io and I repaired to the fireplace, and sat for a while in front of the blaze. I keep a good supply of firewood in the bothy. The electricity supply up here is poor at the best of times. Besides, to live off the grid is to say goodbye to certain conveniences. For the most part, sacrifices we islanders welcome with open arms. By the flickering flames, I brushed Io. He has a double coat, so it's important to groom him at least once a month. The brushing sends the little fellow into a stupor. <laughs> Understandably so. The good boy works incredibly long days. So there we were, the two of us, listening to the roar of the oncoming storm. The whistle of the wind is like music to my ears, the cry of something greater than man something infinitely wilder and more mysterious than we mere mortals and our petty endeavours. But that night, that particular night, the wail of the wind was unnerving, possessed of an evil portent, a tone at once despairing and urgent. I thought of the sheep and the goats in their respective pens, their sporadic bleats reminding me that they were in fact still out there, exposed to the elements. Rain was quick to follow, heavy, cold rain, most unwelcome in late June. And then the thunder, roaring it was, imbued with that same desperate pleading that had come with the wind. Io was on edge, even after his brushing. There's a look in the eyes of a dog that speaks much louder than words— it's a look that tells his master he needs to pay special attention to his surroundings, that a threat may lie in wait. This look might refer to the weather. I know how hazardous the weather can be up here. Smashed windows are the least of it. I know folks up here who have lost rooftops in storms, livestock crushed by falling debris. These are very real dangers, any of which the look in a dog's eyes might have warned you about. But Io wasn't concerned about the weather that evening. His upright ears, and the way he was sniffing the air, were the actions of a dog drawn to something much closer to home, something other than the crackle and roar of thunder. Something else was abroad, and Io was determined to seek it out, friend or foe. His pattern of expression was sniff, growl, soft bark, 
then a whimpering glance at me, over and over again. "'What is it, boy?' I asked, in response to which my faithful companion would nuzzle my ankles. "'What's got you spooked?' And again, that prescient look would tell me all I needed to know. Out there in the night something lurked, a threat to the small holding. It was about then that I really started to think about it. The legend of the knuckle of v, I mean. Orcadian demons are rarely discussed openly here on the island, though, as I've already intimated, they're often whispered about. I mentioned old Crowley earlier with good reason. Crowley, the mad grey-top, was the man who introduced me to the idea of the terrible horse-like entity known as the knuckle of v. Not that he gave the creature a name, I might add. I ferreted that out for myself in a book on the subject of Orcadian mythology, which, as I'm about to quote, describes the thing in some detail. Always a threat to livestock, goes the entry on the creature. The deadly, half-man, half-horse they call the Nukalavi, is confined to the coastal caverns throughout the fertile months by the kindly summer protector, the sea-mither which brings me neatly back to Io and me, by the fire. Listening to the good boy's growls and whimpers, it suddenly occurred to me that perhaps the sea-mither was away from her post. With the storm raging outside, the spirit of summer was evidently far from home. Spurred on by her absence, the half-man, half-horse had emerged from his rocky bastion, frenzied and ravenous. The notion of a wild beast preying on livestock had only ever been a faint, nagging doubt at the back of my mind. An irrational fear born of infantile superstition, I thought. I'd lived through many winters prior to that June evening, and had never truly believed that the knuckle of might be out there, waiting for an opportunity to pounce. Those animals that disappeared over the years, hapless creatures that took leave of their senses and wandered off the beaten track. Happens to us all at times, doesn't it? More than once I've found myself atop a craggy peak here on the island, lost in a blinding fog, cursing myself for having left the bothy without a compass. We all lose ourselves from time to time. It's in our nature. But such thoughts were anything but reassuring that night by the fire, with Io softly barking, and the sheep bleating. "'What is it now, boy?' I remember asking, as Io climbed to his feet and approached the boarded window of the living area. "'What's out there?' I called after him. The good boy only looked back at me, and whimpered. In the moments that followed, I heard something—a crash like a ship running aground, distinctly audible, even above the roar of the storm. Io heard it, too— for he let out an almighty howl, and his tail shot between his legs. I've never seen the young chap so cowed. It's okay, boy, there's nothing out there, I said, approaching Io and patting him on the back. Come on, I instructed, returning to the fireside. Adding a couple of logs to the fire, I filled the cast-iron kettle. What Io and I needed was a good strong cup of tea. We'd sit there by the blaze and ignore the uncanny sounds outside. Besides, the knuckle of V wasn't after us. 
It was after the herd. We could spare a sheep or two for a quiet life, couldn't we? I laughed then, and shook my head, realising the ridiculousness of my thoughts. And yet, Io's demeanour remained unchanged, ears raised, tail between his legs. Before long, the kettle was whistling, and I filled my mug to the brim. Io likes his tea in a mug, too. He has his own, a big cap with the word BOSS in bold lettering across the side. In truth, he is the boss. Dogs that drink tea must be in charge, correct? The tea seemed to settle my nerves a bit. That, and the flicker of the flames in front of me. Add the drone of the storm, and you've got a recipe for relaxation. Well, under normal circumstances, anyway. The thunder started to move away, to the west, by my calculations, leaving the sound of pummeling rain in its wake. Over the course of ten minutes or so, the rain too died away, leaving only the crackle of the fire, and the wind, a gentler wind, blowing through the eaves. I became acutely aware of the stillness of the herd. The sheep were no longer bleating, and Io too seemed to be looking in the direction of the pens, his gaze quite literally penetrating the north wall of the bothy. All of my fears returned, those ridiculous fears based in folklore and fiction. From the labyrinthine caverns below the island, the ravenous Nuckalavi had risen to feast on my herd. The very thought irritated me, filled me with an inexplicable sense of solicitude. Instinctively, I rushed to the kitchen, and withdrew a cleaver from the cutlery drawer. "'Stay, boy,' I ordered Io, who, to be fair to him, had remained stationary by the fire in the adjacent room. There are two doors to the bothy, the north-facing door to the front, and the east-facing door to the side, opposite the pens. Armed with several inches of sharpened steel, I approached the side door, and put my ear up against the wood. It was deathly silent out there. Normally, I am able to detect the tread of the goats as they traverse their pen, but that night, straining to hear by the door, I heard nothing whatsoever. My heart was thumping in my chest, thoughts racing through my mind such as, "'There's no such thing as the knuckle of and stop being so utterly ridiculous. But still, I hesitated prior to opening that door. And yet you can imagine my relief, when, on opening the door, I saw the sheep and the goats in their respective pens, some thirty feet or so distant. Like Io, though, they were curiously stationary, like petrified trees, each of them dripping wet, staring towards the coast. I stepped out onto the boggy turf, and followed their absent gazes north. Something had indeed surfaced from the sea. That crash I mentioned had been the result of a strange object coming ashore, a huge shell-like thing that was faintly visible in the dying light. And when I say huge, I mean the size of a fishing trawler. It was vast indeed. As I studied the object from afar, Io arrived at my side, sniffing the air cautiously. "'Funny smell, boy?' I asked him, 
noticing the bewildered expression on his face as he sought to assess the stench emanating from the thing on the beach. "'Come on,' I said, eager to investigate. We walked the hundred or so feet to the beach, and stopped at the edge of the sand. "'That's close enough,' I said, looking to Io. The good boy was still sniffing the air wildly, perplexed by the noxious reek dominating the coast. I, on the other hand, simply stood there with a mouth agape, transfixed by the weird wonder that had washed up just a stone's throw from my humble abode. How do I describe it? Picture a scallop shell, yellowish-white with dark striations, but big as a boat, perfectly spherical, and covered with clinging green algae. That was the thing that was beached just a couple of feet ahead of Io and me, on the sand. The smell of the ocean positively oozed from it. A stranger to the sea would have vomited on the spot. Even Io was on the edge. So what was this thing in front of me? A gargantuan scallop? A vessel of some kind? Was the fabled Nakalavi said to have piloted a giant seashell? <laughs> how preposterous! But that's just how it is with mythology, isn't it? A dusting of the dubious, a smattering of the supernatural. And yet, as I looked at the thing, studied its strange façade in the twilight, the idea of the thing being a vessel of some sort persisted. I couldn't explain it then, and I can't explain it now but I just knew that that strange shell on the beach was a container, that its purpose was to transport something from one place to another, to transport the dreaded Nakalavid to and from its summer hiding place, to liberate the half-man, half-horse from the confines of that warren of damp caverns. "'Come on, boy,' I said to Io, heading back to the bothy. Whatever that strange object on the beach was, it was probably better left undisturbed for the time being. Better to inspect it in the morning, under the safety of the sun. Perhaps I'd give old Crowley a shout. The Grey Top was bound to have an opinion on the subject, even if that opinion leant towards the idea of the thing being a vessel for a certain monstrous being of Orcadian legend. On my way back to the Bothy, I looked in on the herd said good-night to the chickens. I'm good like that. I've always talked to the animals, given them names. Among the sheep, we've got colourful personalities such as Lisa, Nigella, Audrey, and Charles. A few characters among the goats, too. Natalia, Harold, Bill, and Vixen. Even the chickens have names. Steve, Claude, Nancy, Birgit. I could go on— but you get the point. Despite their apparent well-being, though, the animals were still strangely quiet, rows of horizontal eyes glued to the object on the beach. The thing had me rattled, too, but I was determined to hit the sack, and reevaluate in the morning. I locked the side door behind me, and headed to bed. Io took his customary place by the bedroom window, and I drew the covers up over my head, striving desperately to focus on the sound of the whistling wind, rather than what I imagined were 
curious scratching noises coming from the direction of that giant scallop shell. I was dreaming. Standing by the entrance to a vast cave mouth, I watched as a number of flying objects dashed back and forth, disappearing into the aperture, huge seashells, all shapes and sizes, soaring through the air. But was that air through which the vessel surged? No, it wasn't. It was water. The seashells were under water. I was under water. I wasn't standing by the cave mouth at all. I was floating. As though gripped by the jaws of a vice, I found myself incapable of movement. I struggled against invisible forces, suddenly aware of the salt water filling my lungs. And it was then that I felt another force, like that caused by a vortex, drawing me towards the cave entrance, a dark, thirsty mouth from which I was certain there was no escape. Then I saw that the mouth was filled with teeth, row after row of jagged fangs. This was no cave into which I was being pulled. It was the yawning maw of some aquatic Goliath, and it meant to eat me, swallow me whole, just like the seashells. Much to my relief—well, a modicum of relief—I was abruptly woken by a succession of sounds outside. Io was alert, too, growling. What were those sounds? I couldn't be sure. I mean, I'd been fast asleep. But it had sounded like a large, splitting noise, followed by a series of pops, coming from the direction of—I didn't want to think about it—wanted to go back to sleep. But there was no chance of that now. Io was on his feet, sniffing the air again. I flicked the lamp on beside the bed, and studied my faithful companion saw that look in his eyes again, that look that told me there was a threat abroad, a threat assuredly attributable to that weird, beached seashell. The rain was coming down again, peppering the slates above my head, but it wasn't enough to blot out the bleating of the sheep. The herd was riled. Time to act. But against what, exactly? Climbing from the bed, I threw my clothes back on, and reacquainted myself with the cleaver I'd left out on the kitchen counter. Again, my heart was pounding in my chest as I moved through the bothy. Io had done his job well. I was alarmed, but reluctant to confront whatever was lurking out there, without taking a peek first. There's a small window on the east side of the bothy, that offers a clear view of the pens and, owing to its size and orientation, doesn't require boarding up. In the forbidding stillness, punctuated by sporadic bleating and the rain above my head, I crossed the living-room, and stepped into the small study in which the window is located. Io was at my rear the whole time, alternately growling and whimpering. Visibility was poor, but I could just about see the pens in the gloom. Straining to look in the direction of the ocean to the north, only the dark rain met my gaze. And yet, somehow, I felt sure there was something out there. 
and, after several moments pressed up against the glass, I heard it. Arduous, clumsy, shuffling. Io's whimpering increased. It's okay, boy, I whispered, squinting in an effort to get a better look at what was moving out there. But I couldn't see a thing, could only hear it. A slow, rhythmic swish, 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 as though a trio of bulky limbs trudged across the slippery turf towards my home. Shit, I breathed, beginning to panic. I remember glancing at the cleaver in my hand, mumbling, What the hell am I going to do with this? It was the best weapon I had. But then I thought that perhaps a spade might make a more formidable weapon. But such items were in the barn on the other side of the pens. Shit, I repeated, knowing that I'd have to make a dash for it. Approaching the side door, I psyched myself up for the task at hand. Stay, I instructed Io, who in return offered what I interpreted as a nod of encouragement. Opening the door, I stepped out into the drizzle and closed the door behind me. Then, letting out a huge puff of air, I darted towards the barn, ignoring the bleating sheep as I went. Rushing inside, I quickly located the sought-after spade, and returned to the entrance in order to survey the pens and the grassland between the bothy and the ocean. And there I stood for over ten minutes, watching, waiting. But everything was as it should be. The sheep had ceased their bleating, the goats were huddled together comfortably, and nothing whatsoever threatened to emerge from the glum grassland to the north. But that awful smell was still in the air, the unfettered stench of the deep ocean. I counted the sheep, counted the goats, whispered their names as I did so, not that I could be one hundred percent sure of their identities in the misty gloom but they were all accounted for, which, I have to admit, came as a huge relief under the circumstances. What's going on here? I remember asking myself. In all my years on the island, I'd never once fallen prey to delusions, hallucinations, whatever you want to call them. The delusory among us were the grey tops, Crowley and the like, spouting their funny omens. At least that was what I'd thought because now, undeniably, there was something weird in my midst, a giant, inexplicable scallop-shell just a stone's throw from my home, an outlandish thing indeed. Had it cracked open, letting loose a big, three-legged monster? Io had heard that din, too, so had the herd, and that slow, rhythmic swish-swish-swish just outside. But if that was the case, what had happened to the thing? Where had it gone? Sensing uncertainty again, I returned to the bothy. Io, I called, stepping into the kitchen. Io, I repeated. Instantly, a wave of anxiety washed over me. Io wasn't one to wander off. Stay meant stay, be the command given out on the grasslands herding sheep or in the kitchen by the side door. Io, I called again, 
trembling now. Where are you, boy? And then I felt it, a gale blowing through the bothy. The front door. I raced towards the door, spade held out in front of me, ready to strike. The door was wide open, rain was pouring inside horizontally. Io was gone. Had the good boy fled, or had— had something? I had to stop myself. Couldn't think about it. My best friend taken? No. Not a snowflake's chance in hell. I marched back out into the rain, and, pushing fear to the back of my mind, pulled the door closed behind me. The time had come to pay another visit to that strange shell on the beach. I moved as a snail moves, slow but deliberate. I listened as I went, startled by every gust of wind, as the weather sought to deter me from my present course. The gale was throwing the rain at me in sheets, soaking me through to the bone, and it brought with it that awful stench, intensified now, so much so that I could taste it in the back of my throat. But in spite of the cold and the wet, and the relentlessness of that putrid odour, I pushed on towards the coast. A wiser man would have armed himself with a torch, but I'd been far too concerned with Io's whereabouts to give such trivial things consideration at the time. Dark clouds rolled by above, occasionally revealing the partial moon, which in turn offered fleeting glimpses of the thing on the beach. The splitting noise that had roused me from that terrible dream had indeed come from the shell. The vessel was in two pieces now, like a broken coconut, revealing two internal chambers. A murky substance had oozed out onto the sand, and a horrible smell met my nostrils. A dreadful stink, much worse than that which I'd smelt from afar. What had been inside this thing? Whatever it was, it was alive, and it was on the move. Had it taken Io? Busted its way into the bothy when my back was turned? I'd seen no evidence of such by the front door. No murky fluids, no stomach-churning odours. Perhaps the door had just blown open, and the good boy had taken off running in a blind stupor. Not like Io. Not like him at all. Approaching the broken shell, I took a closer look at the curious chambers within. The stench was overwhelming, but I was determined to get a better look at the thing. Both interior surfaces of the shell were smooth and pearlescent, but in the right chamber I saw what I can only describe as a number of bizarre organic elements attached to the wall. There was a brown mass like a scallop's stomach, perhaps, yellowish-white ganglia and veined ventricles, all manner of muscles and nerves, like whatever had occupied the shell had been fused to it, and had torn itself away, and— Then another possibility occurred. What if something else had torn it away? And then, well, I didn't really get a good look at it in the end. I just remember the swish, swish, swish of its three legs, if you can call them legs, the vastness of its gelatinous torso, 
the round, squamous head that surmounted it, as, from out of the wind and the rain, intermittently lit by the flashing moon, the monstrous thing came running, with, at its rear, barking like a hound possessed, Io, God bless him, pursuing it. Io! I yelled, filled with both joy and fear, as I realized my chum was alive and kicking. The good boy didn't stop, raced after the jelly-like being as it sloshed its way forward. I dived out of its way as it came shambling towards me, unable to tear my eyes away from its appalling outline, a vast, bulbous, scallop-like mass of bits and pieces, both aquatic and terrestrial. Io! I yelled again, as my faithful companion neared the thing at speed. I couldn't make out the look on his face, but I saw the steadfastness with which he ran, determined to protect his master at all costs, prepared to do whatever it took to rid us of the threat to our livelihood, bearing down on the inexplicable creature that right there and then was bearing down on me, in spite of my efforts to be clear of it. And then came the thunder, the explosive report that put an end to both Io's pursuit and the life of the shambling monstrosity closing in on me. It was old Crowley, there on the shoreline, shotgun in his hands. Both barrels had deployed, buckshot tearing the bulbous creature asunder. Like a water balloon pricked by an overzealous child, the sloshing mass exploded before my very eyes. Mushy, putrid flesh peppered the beach like seaweed, dripping from me, Io, and the vast split shell to my rear. The smell was—well, I think I've said enough about the smell. Use your imagination. Didn't deter Io, though. The good boy, whose pursuit had been disrupted by the blast of a shotgun, launched himself at me instead, licking my face with the fervour of a dog denied his master's company for a hundred years. I sat in dazed lethargy for a couple of seconds until I saw the ribald face of Crowley before mine. "'Well, now,' he said, in that barely comprehensible accent, exclusive to the grey tops here on the island, "'I've simplified it here somewhat. There goes his meal.' "'His?' I managed. "'Whose meal?' "'I think you know. Wait a minute,' he added, smirking. "'You didn't think that was the Naklavee, did you?' "'Uh—' I began, but words escaped me. Old Crowley shook his head, and skulked off into the drizzly night, leaving Io and me on the beach, covered in mulch. And there you have it. Turns out that large, scallop-like shells wash up on the shores from time to time, and when they do, the fabled Nuckleavy comes out of hiding, to feed on them. Old Crowley says I should watch my back— interfering with the Nuklavi like that? Well, I couldn't care less about that half-man, half-horse. It's what I've seen with my own eyes that keeps me awake at night. The inhabitant of that giant shell, that three-legged, shambling mass. And there are more of them? More? Like I said at the beginning, here on the island, peace and serenity comes at a price, a risk— 
the size of which your average town is incapable of comprehending. So how about I wrap this up with a word of warning? A little advice. To those of you thinking of relocating to these parts, watch out for giant shells. You see one, you leave it be. Hello ladies and gents, Ian here. Be sure to pop on over to our YouTube channel or Facebook page for regular updates. If you'd like to support our work, please consider taking a look at our Patreon or Bandcamp pages, or search for us on Audible. You'll find links to everything on our website, horrorbabble.com forward slash links. <laughs>